You're listening to 17 Karat K-Pop. For more about this show and my other show, Enthusiasts, plus to get the latest interviews, K-pop news, album reviews, and so much more, subscribe to the show's free newsletter at 17karatkpop.substack.com. Enjoy the show! Hello, everybody. Welcome back to 17 Karat K-pop. There is an enormous amount of ground to cover today. Plus, I want to get to, here's your sneak peek, next week in the coming weeks, my picks for the best albums, videos, songs, etc. of 2023 so far. My so far list for best of the year. I want to focus on those coming up. So we're doing our news of the month roundup early. Let's jump right in. Six big topics, the month in K-pop news, then a bunch of miscellaneous rapid fire headlines. We must begin by talking all about this bizarre twisty saga between SM Entertainment and ExoCBX, the EXO subunit with Chen, Baekhyun, and Schumann. It was a wild ride, a lot of back and forth allegations, rumors, quite a weird twisty story with a weird amicable all's well that ends well ending. So let me break down for you what happened with a bit of background context. If you'll recall the dreaded year for SM Entertainment fans' memories, 2014, when a ton of things hit the fan, long story short, the big issue centered around the Chinese members of the group EXO, and so issues with contracts to non-Korean members of the group, loopholes for exploitation brought up nine years ago. With the exception of Lei, who's a unique situation because he's not really with SM, but he's still kind of with EXO, but only some of the time. That aside, because it's just a technical aside, not relevant to today's story, the other three Chinese members have all left. Tao had one of the messier battles, trying to end his contract with SM. He left in August 2015, but SM won a lawsuit against him January 2016. The ruling was in SM's favor, saying that Tao breached that trust and just breached the contract period, whereas Tao's side was claiming SM was intentionally delaying the release of info that would show he had been innocent, basically. It was a breach of contract dispute about when he could or could not quit, and if he could or could not be considered to have fulfilled obligations. The court ruled that he had not, so he had to repay SM, plus interest on the delayed payments owed to them. A new lawsuit between Tao and SM was filed in 2017, and he lost. But a new lawsuit was filed in 2018, which he won, but the final appeal was against him. So then after all that, the conclusion was that his contract would be officially, officially up, like no more strings attached, you can fully sever ties with SM, never interact with them through lawyers or finances or any other connection whatsoever after 2022 paying them still a percent of your profits up until then. Let's move on to the present day issue. I just bring up the background context, really glossing over a lot, but that's the long and short of it, is that it was a series of legal battles, and sometimes they ruled in SM's favor, sometimes they didn't, pointing out the flaws in the contracts and their relationship to the band members recruited from outside of South Korea. So their management issues are no secret. The newer management issues we talked about at length in episodes like NCT Tokyo and Hybe Hopes and Hybes and Lows, so we'll skip over that today and just talk about this new issue that is just extra interesting in hindsight of SM's past legal situations. The official end date for XOCBX members' contracts with SM, June 1st, 2023. They're claiming that is it and any extension signed should not apply because SM violated the terms of their agreement. 
So the 3XO members in the CBX subunit announced a plan to sue SM to be released from their contracts and get their overdue payments. They said they were willing to talk first, but the SM had failed on at least seven occasions to respond to letters, demanding more financial transparency, and just negotiating willingness. The press release on CBX's behalf was issued to over 350 journalists globally, so Lynn Law Firm clearly wants this to be public, very far known. The five-page letter lays out their main issues, lack of pay and super long contracts. After the law was changed in response to the lawsuits, separate SMX filed against them saying they had these quote-unquote slave contracts they put artists into, the new mandate by the FTC was the maximum contract length you could put an artist under was 12 to 13 years. The loophole they are now being accused of exploiting is basically saying, yeah, you are only under contract 12 to 13 years max, but then kind of coercing them into feeling like they can't disagree when you say, actually, you're signing on for 17 to 18 years. So technically they could argue, hey, we didn't force them past the maximum amount, but you kind of are making it hard to say no. The law firm uses Beckian's contract as a key example, showing how he specifically was kind of felt coerced into saying yes to a contract extension, being told, hey, you're the, the linchpin of EXO staying together. Like, the fate of the band is in your hands depending on if you take this deal or not, so how do you say no to that with the whole team depending on you in their framing of it? One element of the contract worth noting is that it's not just about a length, but about the number of releases they have. So let's say your contract says with SM, you are done after 10 years and seven albums will be made and released throughout those 10 years. If 10 years is up and you've released six albums, SM says they have the right to automatically extend your contract. So it's really not about years as much as it's about output, which could be naturally very exploited as a way companies can keep people under their thumb. Then there's the lack of transparency financially, because the law firm is saying, well, you provided some info to us, but that's not the same as letting us keep it. So SM Entertainment has provided and shown some actual documentation that is requested regarding paychecks, but not copies for the members to actually obtain and own. And the law, really getting into semantics here, but it matters, is about providing it, not just showing it. Another way they are accused of trying to be very technical in how they skirt claims that they're actually violating the terms. Inability to provide, provide, not just show, financial info. Getting around the maximum term limit of contracts stipulation with automatic extensions, as well as nudging people into renewing under pressure, those are the biggest issues they had. They said, quote, We feel scared and daunted in taking this first small step to talk about the unfair treatment. Please realize the courage it has taken us, unquote. Then this case could have just gone private. Like, it could have happened behind closed doors, but no, it actually got more dramatic and weird because SM responded saying there is a third party being nefarious, trying to influence our members, turn them against us, and sign them themselves. They specifically accused Big Planet Made, aka BPM, after an outlet reported noticing a certificate of contents being officially mailed to BPM, then the reporting revealed that they were basically threatening to countersue, get this group involved, frame them as a guilty party, 
BPM's in-house director is MC Mon, who is an artist himself, and he is friendly with Baekhyun. So the CBX members were seen talking to MC Mon, which is where the rumor started. Like, ooh, he's talking to them about business, he's trying to convince them to sever ties with SM and jump ship for them. That's what the rumor became that SM perpetuated. But BPM says, no, 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 they were talking as friends, colleagues in the industry, they needed advice, and also kind of clapped back and said, well, actually, they wouldn't have even needed our advice if SM had not put them in this position in the first place. They put this dramatic issue upon themselves. SM said, quote, Our artists are being misled with false judgments, violating exclusive contracts, or enticing double contracts. SM is basically saying here, not just, hey, you're not supposed to bring them under your spell while they're under our contract because of the principle of the thing, but also because that's not legal. Our contracts were exclusive. More from SM's statement included the argument that they can vouch for their credibility as a trusted company to partner with, citing the example of the longevity of second-gen K-pop acts with them. Which, if I were them, I would not have brought up because that opens a whole can of worms because hello 2014 and the TVXQ issue. I would not want to, if I were their legal reps, approach that with a 100-foot pole. I would probably just not even go down that route. Lots of people could then say, well, actually. But anyway, they do have some agreements that seem pretty amicable, like with Lay, for example, and Tiffany Young from Girls' Generation. She has more freedom with still working with Girls' Generation and doing her own thing with her own management. The statement also says, well, we just can't provide the financial info because we worry it will fall into the wrong hands and we just can't have copies floating out there. They also claimed some document requests were not being made in good faith, reasserting that some third party was nefariously swaying the members away from them. They also claim the contract automatic extensions were negotiated with CBX over a long period of time, and all signed on board without any hard feelings. They said, quote, We will take strong legal action against external forces that try to delude artists with unreasonable financial temptations, flattery, and groundless rumors to collapse the team, unquote. So recap so far, CBX members threatened to sue SM to get out of the contracts they say are super unfair lengthwise and transparency-wise. Then they were seen talking to BPM's director. They say just as friends, looking for advice. SM says for more specific advice about how to legally leave SM and jump ship for BPM. BPM responded saying no, they were just here for advice from a colleague, which they wouldn't have even needed if SM had treated them right from the first place. The next statement from Lin Law Firm came out June 2nd, where they said the EXO members are not being swayed by some third party, and that it was an insulting accusation because they're grown men, they think for themselves, SM is trying to just scapegoat. Interesting that June 2nd was also on the calendar a key filming day for EXO's comeback, which apparently still went on like none of this behind-the-scenes drama was occurring. The at-length CBX response to the June 1st statement issued by SM laid out so much. One, that they're adults who think for themselves. Two, that SM Entertainment's definition of shady third-party influences was way too broad. That technically then everyone from parents to best friends that they confided in for advice just in life about this more generally would be considered suspicious. Three, SM was ordered to knock it off, accusing BPM and the members of breaching or trying to breach contract exclusivity. 
four, they said SM is ignoring a contractual clause allowing more access to financial info. Five, SM had no right to keep the settlement info away under the guise of avoiding it falling into the hands of bad actors. Six, they got nitpicky about the provided versus viewed terminology. Seven, they brought up a violation of the FTC consent decree, basically, that SM had gotten involved in before. Eight, they called out the contractual loophole for automatic extension. Nine, the statement ended with stressing the desire to really continue with EXO. So whether this would all end in parting ways or staying with the agency, they were planning to make it work so EXO would still be a strong group. The FTC complaint filed against SM was made official June 4th. NCBX said this is for the sake of artists who come after them too and other SM artists, so it's not just for them. It's to set a better precedent, calling out unfair treatment. They also cited previous FTC issues SM had gotten in 2007 and 2011. June 5th statement from CBX lawyer Lee Jayhawk was the most detailed yet, specifically citing all those characteristics of Baekhyun's contract, the unfair power dynamics that would feel coercive. They also detail how previous corrective orders have gone unheeded by the company, and they propose that technically the start date for the contracts should not have been the signing date. Because a lot of K-pop groups, they don't even end up debuting. There's that much uncertainty. So that they should technically start after debut, not after signing. So if you don't debut, it's all water under the bridge. Then they really dive into the specifics of the contract and point out that Aspect called out back in Tao's lawsuit days with them. The Annex Agreement which is basically the auto extension feature applied for the sake of overseas promo. Because if you thought debut dates were uncertain, think about actual out-of-Korea dates for releases. Those are really uncertain sometimes, or just subject to a lot of changes. So if you think a group is big enough it will debut in Japan, for example, in six months and they don't, that auto extension on a Japanese member's contract that they have to stay with South Korea, with a South Korean company, that automatic extension makes more sense. But they claim that actually the South Korean members of the group were also forced into that type of auto-extension that should not have applied because they weren't foreign members. If you're a foreign member joining a South Korean group, it's more understandable. Both sides are on the same page more, understanding if that contract needs to be extended because of the logistics of it. But those logistics are not applicable for non-foreign members, but they were treated as such in their case. And they said this was extra just uncalled for, the auto extensions for them, because after all, there was a separate subunit assigned the title XOM, the Mandarin XO versions of songs that would promote in China. So how would they have any expectation of being treated like a member in the group from China when they were actually kind of othered and specified as the part of the group promoting domestically? It all boils down to, hey, don't compare this to the time SM1 against Tao legally, because these are apples to oranges, and the whole reason they got into this mess is because they were treated like they were comparable situations when they should have stayed very distinct. They also cite in this statement the specific punishment that could make SM's behavior illegal and say they are worthy of the penalties of this breach, which could be up to two years in prison and approximately 115k in fines. 
They end with a lengthy message to fans, clarifying what went down in late 2022, that the members extended their contracts for about five years, so the total would be 17 to 18 years. They clarified they had hoped to negotiate, but on at least seven occasions, as some did not accept the conditions they put forth and would not budge. They say the final contracts reflected next to nothing from their list of requests for changes. Then they felt coerced into going through with a contract renewal, the whole team success seeming to ride on them doing so. Apparently, this seems extra cruel. Beckin was kind of coerced into this while he was also in the military, so perfect time to have another responsibility. You don't exactly have equal bargaining power if you're kind of in the middle of something. They say they never got a full deposit amount. They say they suspected the rushing of their contract renewals was an intentional way to hurry that up before more issues with SM were all over the news, which we talked about in those past episodes, that before they could jump ship and say, "Uh, bad PR, let's move agencies, that they would have locked them in for more years. That's what they speculate. But then they also say the big changes in SM's big structure, the SM 3.0 makeover, was something they were not really let in on. They learned like everyone else through the media, making them feel like, quote, merely accessories, unquote. They claim SM took away more profits under false pretenses, citing royalty, producer fees, etc. They claim they aren't buying the will change rhetoric because they haven't yet. And they stressed again their desire to keep the group together, no matter what happens here. June 8th, SM made an announcement just confirming that EXO was preparing to film a reality show on schedule. Again, like none of this was happening. And they kept up a rollout for their artists. It's not like they went dark. Shiny was releasing promo for their comeback. EXO themselves had promo and a surprise early video release. Chanyeol got to start his own YouTube channel. Tail from NCT did. Taeyeon got to do his promo, which I'm glad that wasn't interrupted. But anyway, the all is happy, all is according to schedule attitude was clear. So then for a little while, it seemed like that was it. Like a lawsuit was going on or a new FTC investigation or both, and we would have to wait and see what the legal system would do. Then, around June 19th, SM issued a statement saying it's all water under the bridge, that they reached a deal with CBX, adjusted terms of the contract, and agreed to maintain their working relationship. They said they all just had to clear up some misunderstandings, and everything's good now. They also admitted they had been working off of a bad tip when they claimed a third party was being nefarious, that they bought that gossip and that they admit we apologize and it was not true. They claimed they had tons of time now to discuss things openly and honestly, seeing from both sides' perspectives. They implied that a new stipulation in the contracts will give the artists more solo music opportunities slash creative freedom. So that's the latest. Contract issues were raised. Rumors spread about who is really worth blaming, but then all of a sudden they talked it out and apparently all is well. So lots happened behind the scenes I obviously don't have insider access into. What I will say is most likely, just my speculation, is that SM wanted to just settle, just end this, so they actually did go back to the bargaining table. 
because they know they have a, a checkered past with this sort of thing. For every good working relationship they have with an artist, the other side could argue and point out a counterexample of an unhappy employee. So better not open that can of worms, invite those counterarguments, and just kind of put this to rest. Promise we won't do this again, FTC. So I do think they did actually just go back to negotiating decided it was not worth the legal headache. They're putting their focus, I think, back on the SM 3.0 vision, and this was a big annoying distraction. They were not getting the PR boost, the sympathy they initially maybe thought they could get by blaming a third party. It was not leading to the jumping to their defense that they may have hoped for. That's my thought on it. So yeah, the EXO comeback is just happening mid-July, as planned, like this did not happen. Honestly, part of me finds this a really good story, the silver lining being that it shows public pressure can really work. Like when there is this public media spread of a message, the rumor was really disappointing to hear spread as well, but the good information also spread to make people aware these artists feel trapped, which led to them getting a meeting to get more creative freedom more input on their contracts with SM. It brought up an important discussion about artist autonomy. Speaking of public pressure working, maybe, Luna is free as well. All 12 members are officially, officially out of Blockberry Creative. We talked about this before on episodes of Lunaverse Talk. Long story short, Chu was kicked out, getting too popular for the company's liking, if you ask me. It was another exclusivity, feeling threatened situation. They claimed it was because of ill treatment of staff. We'll never know how much that was a farce or not. Then different members got their contracts relieved. Others did not, but now officially a court ruled, never mind, all of you are released. So what changed? It sounds like it was resting on a very specific issue. Because, again, with the overseas promo, that's when it gets extra thorny with these artist contracts. And that's the case here, too, because it sounds like the court can't just say it looks like this is unfair, right? They need a specific thing to point to. So the specific issue they seemed to legally win was by using the Universal Japan element. They had transferred contractual terms of Luna's catalog in promo to Universal Japan without telling them and getting written consent. So without official member consent and awareness, they transferred and applied their contracts to a different company too at the same time for a Japanese promo. So that was really the thing that made the court decide, okay, we can null and void these contracts. They were not followed appropriately. So two big, exciting developments on this front. One, Adai Circle, my favorite subunit, is back together. They are working with Yoon Doyun, who actually played a part in the A&R for tons of Luna albums. They're working with his company now, having joined CTD E&M. He also previously worked at SM in an interesting full circle moment for this episode. The other members have signed other contracts. So they get a fresh start, but also they come together again. Plus, Adai Circle even has four European shows coming up this August. So that's a really exciting teaser of what could come. The other exciting part of this is the social media reactions. They're just really sweet and fun to watch the Instagram stories the members have posted. There was a Dabi is Free meme from Yujin, a cute group photo from Heejin, Eve posted that iconic Nicole Kidman post-divorce photo of glee and relief. Hyunjin posted a screenshot of watching Pharrell's happy video. Really just delightful to see. 
There's some sets of artists being heard, and again, public pressure helping with artist accountability being found. So ultimately, in all's well that ends well context, these two stories both end pretty positively. Really, really hoping I don't jinx it by saying this. Maybe this episode won't age well, but right now things are looking up. And the power of fans is what our next topic is about too. Fan engagement and how fans can really turn the tides and just have more power than you think. First of all, let's talk data. There's a fan engagement report out from the Digital Media Association that surveyed 3,000 listeners in the U.S. 2,000 were officially considered streamers, streaming music regularly, 1,000 non-streamers. This was open just for a month for people to take, so we won't get too nitty-gritty into the methodology, though you know I nerd out over that stuff, but it is interesting how they figured out who to get a sample size from. With all the caveats that come with the sample size selection, the randomness or lack thereof, the results are interesting. The biggest pluses in the minds of fans from streaming music, the sheer quantity, the extent of the personalization of the experience, and a way to rediscover old favorites too. Plus, 86% said they do find streaming service recommendations for new music to check out helpful. Streamers apparently spend 1.5 times on average more money and time on music for their faves. So they argue that streaming does indirectly really help the industry. Now who gets the financial rewards of this streaming boost? That's for another conversation, but it's very interesting. The percentage of streamers introduced to K-pop thanks to a streaming service, 68%. And 62% overall said they feel like they've become more of a fan of an artist or a genre thanks to the streaming recommendations and just potential. Then there are the genres with the biggest streaming service listener increases. K-pop they treat as a genre here. 59% growth in listeners thanks to streaming. This comes ahead of Latin music at 58%, but behind Afrobeats with a 66% increase. Americana is also on the rise somehow, 60% up. Seventeen cover the new issue of Polestar and are touted for many accomplishments there, including the fact that during quarter one alone of this year, they sold 1.27 million album copies of their back catalog, their sold-out Prudential Center show grossed over 1.4 million, they've earned 61.2 million since 2016 off of headline shows, They sold 4.5 million albums in the first week of their newest releases sales. They've just really been incredible. And that energy of K-pop fans has really been harnessed by some venues. Jeff Benjamin wrote a column for this issue of Polestar that I think got to something really important, which is how big of a deal it is to have a special atmosphere set by the venue. It really is really cool, and as he puts it, you ignore the passion at your own peril. Like when fans say, hey, can we set up here? Can we do this or that before the show? You should say yes, or you're missing out on a big chance to really create a special vibe. He cites the UBS Arena's recent activity of really cultivating that cool block party vibe of K-pop shows beforehand. You know, people will be out there for hours, like it's kind of a vendor market mixed with a flash mob mixed with just a hangout session, a block party. It's so many good things together. And that chill time was really encouraged at UBS Arena with beanbag toss games, chalk, bracelet making material. It was really cute to see. They even had some personal custom ideas for trucks to get certain custom beverages and stuff. They've really tried to make it a big event, a pre-show. The tailgating of K-pop is really cool, and they've encouraged it. 
before Sugas shows there, they were playing BTS music and Sugas over the loudspeakers. They even had a big FAQ guide and on the ground crew. So if you wanted to feel like you were navigating a festival, they could direct you which way to this or that. The venue partnered with Delaware North for bubble tea, mocktails, all themed. So the UBS Arena willingness to really make this a bigger-than-a-concert event to attend, a FOMO-inducing event, mixed with the fact that a lot of K-pop appeals to Gen Z and Millennials. I always say K-pop is for everybody, but you can't deny the Gen Z and Millennial push, especially. You gotta harness that huge combination of factors. The excitement and the age group, that can lead to a huge social media boost. And so he revealed, Jeff revealed, that the arena confirmed to him they saw a 60% rise in social media activity across all metrics because of the stuff they've been doing with the recent K-pop shows. That have also led to them having a 160% engagement increase and a 245% video view increase. So if today's theme is companies wanting good PR, here is a really fun way to get that. It's also a great idea for them to do this in the summer when the weather's good and when a lot of shows are at outdoor venues so people have the general admission seating. Those people have to get out there early to get wristbands or whatever, so use that. Jeff also mentions a Luminate report from last year that showed that K-pop fans are 40% more likely to go in-person to music events and their average spending on music is about $180 a month. Probably more than the average person because K-pop makes a big deal out of the physical album purchases, as well it should, with cool bonuses. Back to talking about Seventeen for a few more updates. Make sure you're ready. June 26th, the out-of-print back catalog of Seventeen albums is coming. You can get, finally again, Seventeen Carat and so many other older Seventeen albums. Pre-orders out now. Official release, June 26th, 11 a.m. Korean time. The group became the only K-pop act on Billboard's mid-year box scores chart. For eight shows this year, they grossed over 30 million. On the top ticket sales list, they ranked number 19 for eight shows and 316,000 attendees and more. Meanwhile, Hoshi released Stay, a self-composed track on his birthday. Junhan continues to stun at fashion events. Some 17 members and the whole world of K-pop went to Bruno Mars's South Korean shows. And Joshua and Vernon announced a new Apple Music radio show on the way, with more details to come. Speaking of K-pop and live events, get ready people. The KCON 2023 lineup is stacked. For the first time, KCON will have three nights of concerts instead of the usual two. I'll share my thoughts in a minute, but first, here's day one of KCON 2023, August 18th. Meet and greets will include tons of Starship Entertainment love, Shonu and Hyunwan, Kravity, Ive, plus Enmix, and Wavy. The concert? That night, Kravity, Ive, Shonu and Hyunwan, Wavy, Taemin, Taeyeon, and Enmix. Day 2, August 19th. Meet and greets with Zykers, Kepler, 5050, INI, and Zero Base One. The concert that night? Zykers and 80s, the KQ Entertainment artists. 5050, INI, Kepler, Zero Base One. Day three's meet and greets. August 20th, Everglow, JO1, ITZY, G Idol, 80s. In the concert that night, G Idol, The Boys, JO1, ITZY, Everglow, Stray Kids, and Lapalus. 
It's interesting this year, KCON LA will be in partnership with iHeartMedia, so expect a ton of coverage, more than usual, and hopefully my own as well. We'll see. I still don't know if I can make it this year, but fingers crossed, really hoping and praying I can, especially for show day one. My ult's favorite solo artist, just period, favorite people in K-pop, Taemin and Taeyeon. Plus, Taeyeon and Ten will both be on the same night because Ten is in Wavy, so we could get Baby Don't Stop Live this summer. I like that they have love for different companies' artists together, so you can see their juniors and seniors having cute interactions together. Night 2 for KQ Entertainment, Zykers and ATs. Day 3, love for JYP. Day 1, Starship and SM. A few comments besides, oh my gosh, so hyped for Taemin and Taeyeon. Taeyeon is just thriving solo lately. I mean, he was just announced as the global ambassador for Lueve plus the solo release, he is just finally getting to shine solo the way he always deserved to. Enough babbling from me about that I have before on the show, but yeah, it is Taeyeon's summer. Other things that I find notable about this lineup, one is that the artists who are going to be there really have been in promo mode. ITZY has a new album on the way, and Mix is coming back next month, Zero Base One's debut officially is next month, Shenyu and Hyunwan are teasing their subunit as of recording time, release date not out yet. The artists that will be there will have just dropped new music a few weeks before, so expect some world premiere performances of certain songs this year. I also want to note a nice shout out to ATs, because usually when you get to ATs level, you're done with the meet and greets. You just have the sound check option at events. You're a little more on a pedestal away from the common people. But the fact they still do the KCOM meet and greets, it's very humble and appreciated. I'm also surprised G Idol's on this lineup. Last year, they came to Chicago on tour like a day or two apart from KCON, which is why they couldn't make it last year. So when they announced their world tour dates this year, and it's almost exactly the same timing, just a few days shy of KCON, they'll be in Chicago. I assumed, oh man, this means they won't be at KCON again this year. But somehow they are, so what a jet-setting summer they have. Lastly, I want to note that 50-50 and Zero Base One, I definitely think it will be the year for them. Last year when I went, Kepler was all the rage. Like, it was a Kepler fest. It was for everybody, but extra love it seemed to be for, if it was for any rookies, it was Kepler. So this year I would expect the Kepler of KCON that people are wearing merch for, talking about the up-and-coming act that I think will take that title this year, 50-50 or Zero Base One. Lots of hype already for those really, really newbie groups. I also predict a ton of random dance play at KCON will involve new jeans and their new music and just the hype boy dance will be everywhere. The new jeans aesthetic, count on it. Those are my thoughts and predictions. One more live event to talk about, Festa, BTS's 10-year anniversary. It was a cool variety. First of all, there was this in-person radio taping. So RM had this radio show you could watch on live stream or 3,000 people in attendance. He had a 90-minute set as like a DJ sort of hosting the show, but he also performed a couple songs. He called Jungkook from LA, V, who couldn't be there because he's just coming back from Spain. He narrated before a beautiful fireworks show set to 13 BTS songs that started with our special fan song, Microcosmos, and ended with Take Two. Plus, it started and ended with Jungkook's narrations. He read fan messages, there were quizzes. It was a really cool, interactive, intimate gathering. Even though it was live streamed for the world, it felt intimate and special. 
Plus throughout Festa, my other favorite part was the fact we got Arson Rock Remix. Plus new live clips of V and Jimin. Of course, the Sante 2. Plus BTS are now officially million stamp sellers. Yeah, not million album sellers, but now also million stamp sellers. 1.5 million stamp sellers to be exact for the commemorative stamps they got. They also had an exhibition up in LA, although what I've heard from it is that security was a bit overbearing. Feel free to testify to your experience if that was not the case. The photo walls, other cool gatherings and events, brought in a crowd of 400k in South Korea. The citywide project that lit the place up purple was called BTS Presents Everywhere. And RM continued to show the love for fans with a very touching note. Basically, the note was reflecting on the microcosmos, the little universe we've created together, and how much she values and recognizes the power and the tremendous energy that goes into creating that world we've cultivated. All the effort and emotion behind being in a fandom. He was just acknowledging his awe of that and his sense of constant responsibility to meet us halfway with this effort, this emotional effort. What he was saying about fandoms actually was good life advice for any relationship. So it was really sweet and touching, and he ended with a we'll get through this tough life together message. Speaking of RM, he was just announced as an ambassador for the Ministry of National Defense and their excavation team. So he's given a speech about it already. He is helping to spread awareness about what this group does to excavate the remains of Korean War veterans, then have them sent back to families for closure. In his speech, he took time to recognize Korean people are the people who make Korea, period. Create the culture, the environment. He also thanked anyone who came before him, the artists who paved the way for this era of what he said is harmony and healing to give people closure and emotional room. One more quick BTS update is just congrats to the gem that is the Sun Epiphany, which is now certified gold in the U.S., now for the lightning round of tons of other updates. Zico designed very limited edition products for shoe care and shoe case. Only 70 shoe cases and 40 shoe cares were sold. Alexa was added to the voice cast of Ghost of Ruin, a new animated series also starring Rosario Dawson. More details TBA. Beyond Music, a South Korean investment firm, recently raised $170 million to do more catalog acquisitions. So since 2021, when they started, they've already worked on creating a catalog they own of over 27,000 songs. In the capital they've raised in total, again in just two years, $400 million. Interestingly, the company was co-founded by a songwriter and the founder of this digital music platform in Asia called Mafia Company. Don Spike received a two-year sentence for drug use. The prosecutors hoped for five years, but his original sentence was altered, the judge said, because the judge argued that previous sentence failed to take into account some mitigating factors like Don's submitted statement of reflection to the court, the paperwork to prove he went through a drug program, etc. But an arrest warrant was issued for the new sentence because he was deemed a flight risk. The band Zodiac announced their fandom name, the X-Bliss, X-Bliss. Kaiko signed a contract with Luminate. So basically, Melon's parent company now works with Nielsen Music. So Melon data will count toward the Billboard Global Charts. Yoon from Winner is enlisting. Moonsua resumed activities. 
But a lot of artists continue to go on a break for health-related reasons. Giselle from Espa, Onu, Sheehan from TFN, Jen Hyok from TNX, Ayan from Stray Kids, Sehyun from Billy, Yansun from Very Very. Good grief. Plus, they keep getting COVID, including Jisoo, Huni from Winner, and Twice members Jenyun and Dahyun. In better news, congrats to Jisoo from Tahiti, who is pregnant, and congrats to Lim Hyunte from Big Flow and Lady Jane, who are married. TXT Subin finally joined Instagram. Aaron from New East launched a YouTube channel. Wendy is leaving her gig at Yun Street, the radio show, due to anticipated schedule conflicts. She officially leaves July 2nd. And hyphen, now rep Prada. Congrats to Unha Kim, former member of The Ark and Khan, who just had her first child. Vanner just got U.S. management. That rookie boy group is getting a delayed but deserved global recognition. So now they've partnered with Eshi Gazet, who's worked with Monster X and others. John Hyun from Teen Top joined Beat Interactive, Ace's company. JYP and Republic Records expanded the roster. Their partnership now includes the full roster of JYP, not just some X. G-Dragon contract update. Apparently his music-related one, as of recording time, with YG Entertainment, expired, but not a separate one with YG for other non-music business-related endeavors. And YG's statement about this implied they are still in talks to renew the music-related one too, but talks are ongoing, as of recording time. Big Bang member Top, on the other hand, angrily insisted on Instagram that he's not in Big Bang anymore. Typing in all caps, quote, I've already told you guys that I'm leaving and I'm now facing a new chapter in my life since last year, unquote. He also left comments like, solo in all caps, and already withdrawn in all caps. Espa threw the first pitch at a Yankees versus White Sox game. Card and Stacy rep this year's Korean brand expo in Germany. Twice are the only female act to ever headline a sold-out show at SoFi Stadium. Young K will come back to a DJ role with Kiss the Radio. He first had it back in 2021, left for enlistment, now he's back. RIP to Wayne Liu of the group The Admonished Trio. He actually was part of a lot of groups, though. The emo, hardcore band, Fall of This Corner. He played guitar for Wayne So Sad. BB Bomb, The Deported. He stayed booked and busy between bands, too. Then he helped form the Admonished Trio after leaving Wayne So Sad. He was quite iconic, and he drew heavily from the Ramones for inspiration. So if you like the Ramones, check out the Admonished Trio. R.I.P. Wayne Liu. TXT are only the second K-pop act to ever spend a full year on the Billboard Artist 100. Twice became the first girl group ever to sell a million album copies in the U.S. Stray Kids 5 Star is only their second to surpass 4 million sales in less than one week. Within Hyphen's Dark Blood, it's certified gold in Japan, and it entered the Billboard 200, their first top five entry on that chart. It got number four. Lastly, my favorite person, Taeyeon, his solo debut, Shalala, surpassed 500k pre-orders, it topped iTunes in 30 regions, the video surpassed a million views in 8 hours, so happy for him. I'll keep you posted on its achievements. Before I go, your action item of the day, I have two for you, two shoutouts I want to give. Books Unlocked is a UK organization, now in its 10th year. The organization provides free copies of titles that are long-listed and short-listed for the Booker Prize. 
It's an anti-illiteracy campaign, so providing free books to help people read, and they have a focus on getting books into prisons, helping prisoners read, and feel empowered as a result, improve their skills for when they return to society. The organization has supported literacy for over 700 students who couldn't access digital learning during the pandemic. They've worked with over 6,000 schools. To learn more about their impact and donation options, go to literacytrust.org.uk backslash programs, P-R-O-G-R-A-M-M-E-S backslash books dash unlocked. If you work in a prison library or just in a prison and want to help, you can learn more by emailing criminaljustice at literacytrust.org.uk. Now I want to tell you about The 97, a cool new documentary that is about a group of high school students in South Carolina. They decided they were going to just totally combat the book bans there and give people access to read whatever they want. So the freedom to read, you know, is so important to me. I talk about it quite a bit lately on the show as my action items at the end of episodes because I just so strongly believe in the power of reading and access to books. So to learn more about this doc, as well as how you can help with the crowdfunding to finish it, you can visit www.97thenumbers.com. It is officially backed by the Film Collaborative as well, which is accepting donations to help with production costs, but it's the real deal worth investing in, seeing how people fight back against book bans. In conclusion, reading's awesome, and KCON will be great. Those are your lessons today. Thank you all for tuning in. I'll talk to you all again very soon. Bye, everybody.